0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at soundtalentmedia.com. Welcome back again. First, a little business. I want to take the time to thank everyone for reaching out to me via email regarding the podcast. It's been much more fun than social media for me. You can hit me up at tom at futurefriday.net. Uh, I'm currently working on a plan to get some sponsors, and then we will subsequently be hiring some young, brilliant, internet-savvy individual to run social media and help produce the podcast, for lack of a better term. Uh, I want to thank everyone that sent in resumes over a year ago. Uh, Embarrassingly, at the time, I was in way over my head and haphazardly began to reach out, and I received dozens of emails from wonderful, capable people. Uh, Even though I wasn't sure of which kind of help I needed at the time and no idea how I was going to pay them. So I kind of just went through and got overwhelmed and was like, shit, I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, But in in the coming weeks and months, as I get this bad boy sorted out, I'm going to be reaching out again. So I'll be posting a kind of job thing on the website or however you're supposed to do this. Bethan has been really helpful in helping me formulate exactly how we're going to go about this. But I'm, I'm really excited. So today I am joined by Anika Pyle. Anika is a poet. An artist and a musician, she has played under the banners of Chumps, as well as Katie Ellen. Her newest solo record, titled Wild River, is out now. Uh, I've been a fan and friend of Anika's for quite some time, and this is very much my favorite release of hers to date. It's uh, an incredible, conceptual journey of a record, and I implore you to go listen to it. Uh, We had a wonderful and wide-ranging conversation about everything from punk rock to local newspapers. We got into poetry, language, yoga, coffee, uh, and of course music. You can listen to Wild Rover wherever you get your music, and you can buy the record at anikapile.com. Anika can be heard and reached at AnikaSneeka at Instagram and Twitter, as well as anikapilestuff at gmail.com. Anika, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: Hell yeah. Uh, congrats on the album. It's been a smash hit at the May Downey household. We're really enjoying <laughs> listening to it. Thank you. And getting to know it. I do have to say, embarrassingly, that the first time I listened to it, I had left it on shuffle from the thing oh, I was God. listening to beforehand. And I know how important it is to listen to this record uh, sequentially. So that, that was pretty stupid. Um, and I thought it was kind of funny.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, uh,
0: it's funny. Yeah. I'm <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but uh so i'd love to get into th- the record but first i wanted to ask um you know i wanted to start out i've known you for a long time but i never really talked to you much about about growing up and while doing some research uh for for our conversation right now i was uh, really stoked to find an article in the tribune which i believe mm-hmm. is a part of the colorado springs gazette mm-hmm. and uh, uh it's titled monument native and Pio releases first solo album wild river uh, and there's a line right in the second paragraph that, she grew up in the shadow of Bald Mountain near Monument in a cabin that has since been torn down. Yep. Is that true? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That was like quite a line. Um, yeah, I grew up in a little, I wouldn't call it a cabin. its ne- It was like a farmhouse. Um, Which but... is still
0: just as like background of, a, of an artist romanticized growing up as a Growing up in a cabin, I would say.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we so Bald Mountain. So I grew up in Monument, which is right on the Colorado foothills. Um, like you can see Pikes Peak, the iconic Colorado mountain top. Very cool. from, from where I grew up. And we grew up in like, my address was South I-25, which if you've been on tour, you've definitely been on I-25. For um, sure. And uh, yeah, because we lived right off the highway in the shadow of bald mountain in the backyard was this little mountain called bald mountain and i used to hike it and um antelope used to run around you know um in in its base and uh yeah and we i grew up in this little house we paid a hundred dollars a month rent for 25 years wow um it was managed it's technically on a land preserve and they ranched cattle there and the house is like a 1900s farmhouse that was a a charming shithole and was basically (laughs) sinking into the ground there was like a like a 12 inch gap between the wall and my floor because the foundation was like just melting into this swamp basically and uh yeah after you know they were the deal was you can live there we'll never raise the rent but we won't lay a finger on the house so okay um at, at, at a certain point you know after like almost a hundred years of never touching the house they deemed it unlivable and so about five years ago now maybe six years ago they evicted my mom and then they tore down the house and so when you go there it's just like this huge cottonwood tree like i'm talking huge like people length in the trunk it's a giant tree that was like my tree and we had a tree house in it and it's kind of sad it's just like this road that leads to the tree and then this pile of like what our life used to be—it's just crazy.
0: A foundation of yeah, that's that's crazy. Especially considering that it wasn't knocked down to um, be replaced with something new. You know, like yeah. uh, purposely it was knocked down because just to end it. It's almost like closing the book on it.
1: It's yeah, it's
0: fucked up. I uh, I always wonder what it'd be like to grow up socially in that regard. So where I was from in, in Scranton is just a sprawling town that's a couple hundred years old. Everyone came over from Europe and various places and set up little neighborhoods and worked in the mines. And you know, there's, there's just people everywhere. Um, so what was it like if you wanted to hang out with some friends? Did you, were there other people who lived near there or did you guys have like institutions that, that did social stuff? Like some friends told me about something Four H was like a place where you can go to a dance or whatever, shit like that.
1: Mm, Yeah. I mean, so we had, there was another house on the property that was occupied Kind of off and on and there we did have some neighbors for a while that had two children but they were much younger than me my sister babysat them but i didn't really have much um, of a relationship with them so most of the time we were alone and to get anywhere it was miles so um you know there were like crazy times where we'd get snowed in and i would get so annoyed that I would walk like the mile and a half in the snow to (laughs) the county line road that was plowed and people's moms would come and pick me up. Um, But our like our big social hang was the Village Inn, which was um, kind of like a chain diner, but it was open late and you could sit there and drink coffee. And so a lot of kids would go to the Village Inn and just drink coffee and hang out. Very cool. Um, yeah.
0: It's like a Denny's or a East Coast Diner situation. We have yes. A lot yeah. of those. I mean, yeah. We did the same exact thing. Except you could smoke inside then too. So it was like yeah. extra. <laughs> it could be bad. So, <laughs> um, so in that kind of wide open space and in that close to, you know, in the shadow of Bald Mountain, as it says, you guys probably had some good urban legends and superstitions. Well, were there any scary stories growing up? There's a a couple that seem to be prevalent in all of like American culture. And I always thought it was really interesting. I hope it doesn't go away as people do more online kind of urban legends, like Slenderman and things like that. I always wondered what it was like for, uh, you know, other parts.
1: Yeah. I mean... I don't know if there were specifically like I can't recall any specific monument urban legends, but my mom is a very much like, you know, they say that some people like receive the energy, like are just like recipients of the weirdness of the world. And my mom is definitely like a weird weirdo recipient. (laughs) And um, she definitely thought our house was haunted by a little girl. Um, but she also, when she was younger, swears that she was visited by the Mothman. And she used to tell me this story where she and her younger brother shared a room, um, or like it was two rooms separated by a door and they would leave the door open at night. And then each of them had a room to the hallway with a a skeleton keyhole. And one night my mom heard footsteps walking down the hall and, you know, got, really scared and was like oh my god what's happening and so you know she tried to wake her brother up and she went to the keyhole and was looking out the keyhole and saw a shadow walking along the hallway and then the shadow turned and looked at her and it was just glowing red eyes nope And. Um you know, she used to tell me this story when we were kids and then we watched the Mothman prophecies, like rented it from Blockbuster or whatever, and she yeah. had like a PTSD breakdown. She was Jesus. like this is the Mothman, like this is what happened to me. Um and so I always think that's like probably the closest um encounter I've I've uh come to an a well, real urban legend.
0: Love that. That's definitely uh scary as hell. And I yeah. do know what you mean by people kind of receiving that end of things you know even if they just interpret the world that way or whatever reason we don't understand yet I feel like that is is definitely a thing we have some people like that in my family as well that have some crazy stories about you know the Irish funerals in the early 1900s and all Mm -hmm. kinds of crazy shit that happened I'll eventually get into them at, at some point uh one thing I wanted to know about the growing up in monument and the local paper like did you grow up reading the newspaper like was that is there a connection there for you to have that article in it and
1: everything yeah it was my number one it was like the only press goal i had for the record was like i really want to be in the dry lakes tribune because yeah, yes growing up it was like you know we would they the news was um not like it was today. <laughs> <But No. laughs> it's probably still not like that in in Monument, but yeah, you'd go to the coffee shop and get a little Tri-Lake's Tribune and read up and sometimes your friends would like be like, you know, uh Eric Eric Smith was, you know, the linebacker for the yeah. Lewis Palmer Rangers and he, he really killed it on the Friday night game, you know, stuff like that. Um but I reached out to them blindly and I was like, "Hey, I, you know, I have this I have this story I'd love to to talk to you and and they wrote me back and had a really sweet wonderful conversation with this woman who wrote the article who actually is from um new york and her mom went to school in philadelphia and so it was a nice like east coast colorado connection
0: very cool. There, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I really love uh, the role that the newspaper played when we were growing up as well. It, you know, my sisters were really good athletes, so they were in the newspaper all the time. We'd always cut the articles out and put them on the refrigerator. Anytime one of our neighbors was in the paper, we'd cut them out and put them on the refrigerator. Uh, my dad, like a, like an old political curmudgeon, would write letters to the editor, and they would get published sometimes, <laughs> which, was, which was pretty hilarious. Um, and I kind of really find it sad that that... Communication connection for communities this has been replaced by you know Facebook. I know, and uh, yeah. the, a lot of the newspapers are being bought up. I I don't want to like badmouth Condé Nast if it's not them, but it's those large media companies. Um, and Beth Ann worked for the Altoona Mirror and some other local papers, mm. and a lot of her friends that I talked to a lot worked for newspapers. But one thing someone had brought up recently was that the only time I experienced the local paper now is when someone sends me an obituary from back home and it'll be like a digital one behind a payroll and it's just so bizarre about it and i think that one thing that uh contributed to people's kind of lack of context regarding the uh, how much COVID has affected us is the lack of seeing community leaders who were you know succumb to COVID or uh were just people in their neighborhood that they know or knew dying from it because they don't have that local paper connection don't have that obituaries um kind of connection anymore. I thought that was really an interesting point and also fucked up and sad.
1: Yeah, that's too That's that. I, um, was listening to, I think, Hidden Brain, um, and they were talking about kind of how, um, we understand, we exercise more compassion when it comes to things like death or tragedy, if we can put a face to a name and, um, You know, part of the reason why I feel like there's a sort of lack of true understanding of the impact of COVID is because it's kind of just a number. It's this huge statistical number. And yeah, if we were faced with each of our local papers having to be completely dedicated to obituaries, we might be able to respond in a different way, psychologically, to what's going on. Um, It's an interesting observation.
0: Yeah, totally. It makes it makes so much sense. You know, especially like there's a movement called the effective altruist movement and I don't know that much about, but a lot of it kind of boils down to all right, well you can spend $30 on this charity or you can spend $30 on this charity that buys mosquito nets for people who are affected by malaria in Africa and it's not it's very numbers based and it's not that I don't know I don't really want to call it sexy. It's like horrible or romantic or just you know, what what, fashionable, but it's like, yeah, your dollar can actually just save this many more lives because this many people are actually still killed by mosquitoes carrying malaria this year. And without being able to see the human part of it, we kind of don't associate it as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, So on that horrible note, wow. You, uh, so you got into punk rock, I would imagine, sometime in, in high school while you're in Monument?
1: Uh, when I was really young, actually, I was eight years old. This is my, like, you know, wow. we always have, like, this punk rock come to Jesus story. Exactly. Um, I, I was, yeah, eight, and, you know, in heavy rotation at the time were Spice Girls, Alanis Morissette, um, <laughs> the Verve Pipe. Uh, but my mom's boyfriend gave me Green Day's Dookie. And that changed very my cool. life. Um, and yeah, and also a jean jacket with a corrosion of conformity back patch on it. So I became a very cool eight year old.
0: <laughs> wow, you <laughs> and- had the, the the eight the starter pack of it. You were set for life. On that yeah,
1: one. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So that's my kind of like. From there, I feel like I always talk about that record and Green Day in particular because they're so melodic. I like as a kid, I g- Googled uh, like. I don't know I discovered the term melodic hardcore and that became like my mantra and I was like yeah it's like hard and political and like provocative but it's melodic and we can sing along to it and that's what I like I'm a, I'm a lot of hardcore kid um, <laughs> I love that yeah
0: uh, so, you know, then you, you obviously start, became a musician. I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to spend too much time on the punk rock stuff. Cause you know, we, you, uh, you moved to New York, you played in Chumped. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're super involved in the punk scene. We toured together. Yep. You guys played fest. You know, we would see you when you came through Philly. Um, I, you already covered how you got into punk. Your your come to Jesus moment. So, so as you put it, I, that I, that I really like. Um, but I was told to ask what happened to your Liberty Spikes?
1: oh well uh they were short-lived um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i wish i could find this fucking picture um i remember yeah being in the bathroom being like i really want liberty spikes i had a go betty go t-shirt and a studded belt and i was like this is this is my the new me i had dyed my hair like this awful mix of it was blonde chunks in the front and then it was a gradation of purple blue and green in the back with like brown it was the worst, but it was just short enough that if we took a lot of hair gel we could make Liberty Spikes, but they wouldn't last for more than two hours. So it was, it was very
0: <laughs> I'm glad you didn't time. go as far as to, to get into the glue situation with Liberty Spikes, which I which no, you I had, see once in a while.
1: I know. Yeah. I no no glue for me. My sister put gack in my hair when I was a little kid and that <laughs> kind of it traumatized me. <laughs> it's a very sisterly
0: sisterly thing to do. Yeah. Um, so looking back now on punk rock and how that shaped you as an artist now. So so I would say that I would consider you an artist in um, you know it's full sense. Crossing mediums, a poet, your songwriter, singer, um, visual artist. So far as you've released a companion book to the new record. Um, how did the kind of do-it-yourself framework of punk rock set you up? for how you express yourself now and how you share your art with the world. And do you look back on it with a with a cynicism at all? Because I know that in punk rock, when you're coming up, you kind of set up, at least we did, set up uh, rigid guidelines as to what's punk, what's not, what's allowed, what isn't. And then I always wonder how that early kind of throwing away of good things uh, led to kind of like slowly incorporating them back into my life now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that what i loved about being a punk as a kid was you know it was my first understanding of manufactured like self-manufactured culture um and a lot of that had to do with aesthetic you know um and kind of pushing buttons and yeah sort of this provocateur sense and you know i monument was a very conservative very evangelical um very white um pretty upper middle class towns so anyone who didn't kind of fall into that category sort of formed this union this punk union you know and we found each other because we were all wearing vans and converse (sighs) and no effects patches and it was just this weird little like i was like oh why does this you know why are we all gravitating together um and so you know, that was an interesting, that's just an observation. I don't even think that answers any of the questions. <laughs> um, no, but, totally.
0: It's right on there. It's like the contrarianism that brought everybody together, you know, yeah. you kind of like all fumble in the dark for what it is you're actually looking for. But in the meantime, you know, you have your your, your gang.
1: Yeah. And that, that was so crucial to me as a kid who kind of didn't, I mean, I, f- I felt like I was a very good student. I was really involved in musical theater and choir. I had a lot of after school activities. I kind of like bounced around social groups I was like the runner-up prom queen but I was a punk Mm -hmm. and that's where I felt really seen and you know that taught me that like it was impossible for me thinking about playing at the local club like I didn't have a you know I was I didn't have a band at the time I was just playing Mm -hmm. guitar and to be able to you know have a show in a barn and have 50 kids show up like that was really Mm -hmm. empowering because you know it teaches you that You kind of have to do you really do have to do things um uh and if you find a way to do it to band together and do it then you can kind of circumvent some of the gatekeeping that happens in every aspect of our lives so i think that was sort of an early um yeah an early value that i have really carried with me and especially with this you know to to sort of follow the through line to this record um you know part of the reason why i did i'm doing everything myself so you know people are like what's june records and i'm like oh that's the record label i made up when i put it on spotify (laughs) um and so you know i'm self-releasing it i didn't record it all myself but i did record some things myself i recorded all spoken word myself and some extra tracking um yeah i made this book i did the artwork with the help of jp flexner who gave me some tips on how to blow up a small image to a big image (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yeah it was like retaining that kind of spirit like a lot of the time you get sort of bogged down because you're like well i don't know how to start a scrunchie business and make a million dollar scrunchie (laughs) business and sometimes it's just like well you you don't wait around to be like discovered by the scrunchie guy you just figure out how to make your own scrunchies and then you go outside and try and sell them or you get on facebook marketplace like um so yeah and especially a big You know, I'd never felt more connected to DIY, my DIY ethic than trying to publish poetry because if you think the music industry is bad, the poetry industry is a fucking nightmare. They make you pay for every submission. It's like $10 just to submit a reader poem. After I tried and spent $250, I was like, fuck this. I'm just going to make my own poetry record. It's going to be weird, and maybe people (laughs) won't like it, and I'm going to publish my own poetry book and I don't need your elitist intellectual bullshit. Um, And also I can't afford this. (laughs) So (laughs) that was really, you know, that made me grateful for kind of this, yeah, this sort of tradition that um, has been a tenant of my life, I think.
0: Amazing, I really, really love how uh, you can take that early on learning about doing it yourself uh, for lack of a better way to describe it is a do it yourself mentality that you can carry on through life and you can already have the contrarian foundation to push away or be suspect of the institutions that even if they're not, you know, a massive 300 year old institution, it's still the people who either by choice or by default are gatekeeping the poetry industry, you know, yep. like um, the so-called industry, as much as it is an industry. Um, and you being able to self-release all that stuff, it's, Fantastic. So we're going to jump around a little bit, but jumping back into that um, self-releasing part, wanted to get a little bit nerdy and ask you, so, so sonically, the record sounds fantastic. Thank you. Um, it's a departure from a traditional acoustic or electric guitar music kind of built out from, you know, chord progression and drums. There's a presence of electronic percussion. There's uh, some synths that roll in it. And I wanted to know what a little bit from the nerdy side of what your process was, choosing those sounds or or building those songs
1: yeah um so i have to give like major credit to matt schimmelfenig who helped you know audio engineered the record and helped co-produce all the electronic stuff and the whole record um and really you know i think took what took the bones of what i had presented to him and elevated it in a way that only he can through this very specific and um yeah, patient and creative work ethic that um, he has. But Hell yeah. basically, you know, it was kind of, I had written all these songs, some of them on guitar. I'd started writing on the keys and Roger and I have a Rhodes because he inherited it from a friend. And so I started writing on that. And um, this, oh, you can't see it now, but behind me is a Casio keyboard that I got from a friend who moved to Ohio. Okay, cool. And um, so, all of the electronic songs on the record that you hear started as, you know, tone oh four three rhythm one two five on this Casio <laughs> keyboard, um, and then, you know, I had sent Matt kind of these demos that were a little bit all over the place. And when I showed up to the studio, I had a bunch of guitars, and um, I was like, you know, maybe I'll start with the classical guitar, and so. I just picked it up and it just felt right. I love the sound of it. I don't play it traditionally. I'm not like a finger picker. Um,
0: I think maybe for those who don't know, a classical guitar is, I guess I would describe it as the strings are spaced further apart and typically are made of nylon. mm -hmm. Was that kind of the situation? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more fun to play with your hands, at least in my experience.
1: Yeah, and it has this sort of resonance to it. Um, Like it has a sustain, a natural like reverb and sustain that I really like. And so, yeah, I just ended up tracking all the guitar and vocals live at the same time. So, you know, a lot of the time when you're recording, you'll record the guitar track and then you'll go back and record the vocal over it. But it felt more, I don't know, it just felt like I felt more connected. I feel more connected to the song if I'm playing and singing at the same time. So that's that's what we did. And, you know, then we went back in and kind of tinkered with with sounds and was like, oh, maybe we should throw some reverb on this. And, um, for all the, you know, electronic stuff we, you know, I played like in a MIDI keyboard and then we kind of listened to the original demo and was like, okay, what, what sound can we achieve that retains sort of this original feeling, but is more pleasing to listen to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, so basically when you're saying that you, uh. Played the key the the chords on a MIDI keyboard, and at that point the sound isn't chosen, and you can kind of plug in whatever different synths and sounds that you want to. You can come back later to it. It's like a yeah, cool. Yeah, For people don't understand. Yes, know, yeah, that's, that's
1: yeah, and and the yeah. So the the MIDI keyboard is just like you can plug it straight into the computer, and then you put in you play the chords and the notes. Yeah, and then you can kind of do whatever you want with it. You could make it sound like a an elephant if you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, and my favorite little, you know, I mean, it, yeah, there was a kind of a lot of elements to it. Like, um, we, I ended up, I tracked all the spoken word in the studio, but then just didn't like how it was delivered. So I went back and tracked it. I have a an XLR um, telephone microphone. And so I ended up tracking all the spoken word through the telephone, which also kind of lent this sort of like communicative feeling to it. Um, like I was leaving a voicemail for someone who's never gonna get it. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and then I recorded like the shower <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> for the last song and um, Kaylee played some strings um, for the record and Jeff Rosenstock played some saxophone. And um, yeah, I, I tracked some vocals at home, some additional vocals and um, yeah, so it was kind of a, it was a, a work in progress.
0: Yeah, very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, I really, really, again, like how it sounds. I love how it sounds. And I think that the choice to use the telephone brings a whole new dimension to it for me. You know, not, uh, And it just, yeah, it's, it's very, very cool. And speaking of, it is a conceptual record. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of times maybe it was this way for you in Katie Allen or Chumped, and it has definitely been this way for us in, in the Men's Singers before, and that is while writing an album, it, does, it doesn't necessarily have a top-down Uh, Direction at first. We're kind of writing songs that might be on, people put on each other, uh, put on mixes for each other or might end up on a compilation or it doesn't have to be quote unquote on the record. Um, When you came into this one, was it more of a top-down focus of exactly what you wanted to do or the type of uh, uh, message and experience that you wanted to get across?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's definitely was a very intentional arrangement of material um, and you know it kind of sometimes when you're in the creative process you don't you're you're called to certain things but you don't know exactly how they connect um, and you know so the title I actually haven't talked about this at all but um, the title of the record is called wild River and you um, you know that has a bunch of different kind of significance that came together sort of after the fact but originally i was in um brighton i guess that's the town on the sea with the boardwalk right yep yeah um one of them, yeah one yeah one of them <laughs> <laughs> um but uh it was you know we were on tour in europe and we were at this on the boardwalk but it was closed because it was really cold and so it was all of these like really beautiful um rides that reminded me of being a kid and sort of like brought me back to this sort of like nostalgic time and there was one called wild river and i was like i took a picture of it and i was like wow this is this means something to me but i don't know what yet and that was the spring of 2019 um winter spring of 2019 and so i kind of sat with that for a while and i was like wild river wild river and i started like you know, like, what does this mean to me? What songs am I going to write about a wild river? Like, you know, think it immediately kind of took me to being a kid and like floating down the Colorado River or like trout fishing with my dad. And, um, you know, so that kind of just like planted a seed in my brain. And then um, in September of 2019, I was asked to uh, play a show at the Free Library that was a a presentation of songs and poems and how they're, related to each other. So I started putting together some material for that. And then my dad died. And so I went home to Colorado pretty immediately, and then spent some time there and then came back, and was like, I need to play this show, what am I gonna do? And so, you know, in response to that, I kind of started writing a bunch more, and kind of looking at the material that I had already amassed in a different light. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes, I I feel like, when he died, all I could do everything was about him, like, like, everything was related back to how I felt about in my grief. And um, so it's like, even though some of these things weren't necessarily written in response to his death, they became so much like, about that process for me. Um, And so I put together this set for that show, I really loved it. It felt very much like an honoring of him and our relationship and that time and what I was experiencing. And that is what I went into the studio with. Um, wow! And somehow it just, as I was like putting the material together and thinking back on it and looking at all these like references, I was like, oh, it's called Wild River. Like,
0: Wow. Um, what an incredible, origin story of the record to be struck in that one moment on the boardwalk in Brighton in the UK, mm-hmm. not exactly know what it is yet, but being so deeply affected by it that it ended up rolling out into such a, a profound representation of yourself and an honoring of, of your dad and the processing of, of, that, um, you know, relationship and, and death. Like that's, that's so huge. Um, it's really cool. Thank you. And fascinating. Uh, I do gotta say, Brighton, what a cool place.
1: Yeah, I know, right? right?
0: The, the, it's like a weird uh, New Jersey boardwalk esque Charles Dickens uh, mashup in, in, in the UK. Yeah. It's a, it's a really fucking cool place. And it seems like shows are getting better and bigger there. A lot of people apparently moved there from from the UK or from London.
1: I mean, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's cool. uh, it's
0: Funny cool. enough, the last time we were there, they had a game where you had to throw a baseball. <laughs> and it was like five american people walking on the boardwalk and we saw the game and the british guys were throwing it horribly because they are not used to throwing a baseball we all just went up and just all won the game in a row <laughs> which, uh, that's really loved. Funny. Oh, yes, that was pretty funny uh yeah the, the i love that we call the library in philadelphia the, the entire system is called the free library mm-hmm. um it's kind of a, just like a badass notation, I think. Yeah. I, I was unable to go to that uh, free library event that you did. We were we were on tour. But I would imagine that some of the more, I'll call it higher brow artistic opportunities might be opening up to you as you are an artist in so many different facets of the sense of the word. So I was wondering what your experiences with those kind of more institutional art um, I would call them situations. So I know that there's like artist uh, residencies and there's just like um, opportunities from federal and state and local grants that allow people to kind of express their art without having to sell it, you know, which is something that we as a band are so used to. You need to sell t shirts to get to the next place and then turn it into a career or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if that you anticipate that freeing up the kind of the expectations of what you're going to do or the commoditization of what you're going to do.
1: I hope so. Um, actually for the, f- I last night applied for an artist residency for the first time, a songwriting cool. residency, um, which are pretty hard to come by there. There's a lot of visual art residencies, a lot of writing residencies, but songwriting and composition residencies are pretty rare. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that, you know, I hope that those are some kinds of things that I can move towards. I think part of you know, it's funny because Calgary Blues to me was a very conceptual record too. I don't think I quite had the language to articulate it and um you know, it didn't I didn't know that na- then what I know now about how to kind of um yeah, to say what I'm trying to to say. Um and so I hope that I can get closer to kind of um Yeah, I mean, I hate like I had a I said that thing about the scrunchie yesterday because yesterday I literally Googled how to become a millionaire because I was so (laughs) I was so defeated by honestly, my student loans and thinking about being unemployed and like, you know, I don't want to like try and sell this record that's about grief and loss, like to pay my bills like I, I, you know, if there was a way that's, you know, so anyway, I. Of course, didn't learn much when I Googled how to become a millionaire, but I did (laughs) have a dream about starting. Did you figure it out? (laughs) Yeah. No, I had a dream about starting a million-dollar scrunchie company, so um, we'll see.
0: (laughs) That's the start? Nice.
1: No. um, But, yeah, I would love to do more sort of, especially, like, community-based, like, uh, you know, I feel like advocacy, activist-based artistic work, um, and I, I just started an internship, actually, at the Center for Artistic Activism, which is kind of a clearing house and training center for um, creative-based resistance. Um, so I'm hoping to learn a lot from
0: that. But Very cool. Uh, speaking of how to make money out of all this, I know that we've all had various <laughs> jobs uh, as we have have um, traveled through this, this musical journey, and you were very frequently a barista. Mm-hmm. And I know that I've read in a couple interviews that coffee has played a role in your life, as it does in, in all of our lives. But I have a couple of, of close friends who are in the coffee you know, industry, for lack of a better way to put it, and are really big fans of it. Um, and I always like the kind of social situation that presents itself as coffee shops. Like I would always would much rather have gone to a bar and now that I've gotten – A little bit older i really enjoy uh, meeting somebody for a cup of coffee well i did but when that was when that was more of a thing but uh (laughs) what how do you think growing up or being involved in that scenario kind of informed the art oh my god you can even just say what do you like about coffee shops
1: yeah i coffee shop culture and coffee culture it's just like i mean it sounds so silly but you know, when I talk about my top five favorite things, which is like kind of this lifeline list where I'm like, everything is (laughs) terrible. What do I have to grasp at? Um, (laughs) Coffee is always number one because yeah, it was this kind of, um, it's a very proletarian beverage. Um, It's, you know, it like, I always really love to watch, I mean, my dad and my mom were both like huge coffee drinkers. My, I think I had my first cup of coffee at my grandma's house um because my grandpa would just like sit there all day long with a cigarette and a cup of coffee like that he would just keep like microwaving over and
0: over and amazing over again. that's it uh, my grandmother did the same exact thing she would drink she would get like a mcdonald's coffee but then had her house coffee and she'd yeah. just sit there and smoke <laughs> and drink coffee for the whole day
1: yeah there was something really kind of like i don't know it's kind of artistic about it in a way but also very like working class and yeah. um yeah i i didn't work in coffee until i went to college but serrano's was the sort of anti-starbucks coffee shop um in my town as a kid and i loved to go there and um you know i have this really special memory of meeting my grandma there my mom's mom um and she bought me this mug that says my heart is um you are always in my heart and i still have it It it's like 25 maybe it's like not 25 years old it's pretty old (laughs) it's like 15 years old at least um and yeah, I just love, you know, I, I moved to New York City. My first job was at a coffee shop. I told them that my dream had come true when in my interview because I wanted to work at a New York City coffee shop. It was like, <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, I love, I mean, I've gotten so many opportunities from being a barista. The songs, poems um, at the free library, my regular asked me to perform there. Um, I met you know, bandmates like, uh, you know, Anthony from Katie Ellen I met through a connection at a coffee shop. Um, And I just love the way that it's very, it really becomes people's third space. It anchors them in their communities, you know, depending on, like a barista has a big role in people's lives, I think larger than you you really think. and I also admire the coffee industry because it's one of the only jobs where you can work during the day and make a living wage. Like you could make 18 to 20 bucks an hour at a coffee shop, sometimes even more. Um, and yeah, coffee in itself is sort of like my daily ritual for joy. And, um, and just, yeah, I love to enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, a really fascinating uh, place and space. And I love coffee. I've, I love the temporary baristas that I've got to know and anytime I've spent... A little bit of time, either on a vacation, or let's say recording at a studio, or working on a X project, where I'm going to be in the same place every day, but only for a little bit of time. Mm. But I would go in and see that person every day at the same time, and then one day just kind of, kind of gone. Uh, my local spot now is is Shot Tower, which is which is pretty great. because oh, yeah. really, we moved in the last year, so going to having a new coffee shop has been it's been pretty cool. I actually did a, went down the rabbit hole looking up like kind of the history of cafes and, and tea and coffee and how it played a role in society. And they banned them a bunch at first because everybody stops getting drunk and they would hang out and get all caffeinated and be like, wait a minute, this is fucked up. We need to stop this. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, all kinds of like revolutionary activity would happen and they'd be, they they shut them down in uh, uh, France and the UK. And I thought that was pretty hilarious. It's a long way from the guy who's, who's silently writing his novel in the corner yeah. on, his, on his Apple computer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So, along with the art, so this one's a stretch, but I I, I wanted to ask it. So, you're also a a yoga teacher. Yes. Um, So, along with being a poet, songwriter, singer, uh, artist, and the rest, do you consider yoga a type of art? Um, I've uh, studied martial arts for a couple of years now, and I think it would be a stretch for me to, to relate that to any type of meaningful self-expression i I can see how some people be able to do it for me it's more of like a game it's like uh you know learning about your body and being mindful of what all of your limbs are doing and then like a gamified kind of like friendly friendly violence of sorts but as a a yoga teacher you're sharing the experience with people and also guiding them on the way almost as if like a poem or a song would do you do you uh look at it that way or have you uh, learned anything from it
1: definitely i think you know we Art is such an interesting, elusive term. And (laughs) I think so many things are art. Um, You know, I I haven't really distilled my own definition of it. I'm constantly writing an essay in my head called In Defense of Art. It's (laughs) always there. I'm always gathering things for it. But so this might be an evidential uh, moment, but I definitely think both practicing yoga and especially teaching yoga is an art form. Um, And something that is a tenant of art for me is being connected to something experiencing art or making art is being connected to something that feels larger than yourself that you can lose a sense of time doing. And when I'm practicing yoga, I'm, you know, connected to this very long ancient tradition, um, of spirituality and movement. I'm, you know, it's it's an art of active listening, because if I'm being guided by a teacher, I really need to be present with their instruction, but also really mindful with my own body and my reaction. And so I'm not thinking about what time it is, what if I'm hungry, you know, I'm focused on sort of these micro movements of spirituality and also physicality. And when I'm teaching yoga, it's so much like writing a song or a poem because, um, you know, you learn different sequences and the way that certain movements affect parts of the body or people's you know i mean i guess you can't necessarily affect or predict how a movement is going to affect someone but you can you know you have to mindfully sequence a yoga class so that people are getting out of it what you intend for them to get and also that you're protecting people And I find that writing a sequence, you know, I often start with a theme that is out, is not physical, um, like open heartedness or gratitude or um, acceptance. And then think about how certain movements or certain sequences can um, allow you to embody those kinds of themes. And I find it very much to be, I think that's why I like to, I think that's why I like to practice it and also,
0: you know, why I like to teach it is because it feels very artistic. Absolutely. I think uh, there's a couple amazing things that, that that you said there. One of them being just to focus on yoga. Uh, it's something that I practice probably twice a month these days, not too, not too often, but it. I did it at first to get better and more flexible in, in jujitsu. Mm. So I was able to, you know, move around more and then discovered something that I was very cynical at first about and that was what you uh, talked about and that's intention. So you're actually you may have intention for other types of exercise to get stronger, to lose weight for some people to like, just because they, it feels good. But in yoga, you really can bring in a uh, a spiritual intention. Like you mentioned, acceptance or forgiveness. And you can actually kind of like be mindful of that while connecting it to your body. And I think that at first, was so cynical about it and now have really accepted that it is not only possible but it's extremely helpful and and a Mm. really cool thing Mm -hmm. uh and just to throw back just a second you had two i think maybe it was more than two but there were two kind of uh hinges uh when you were in when you were defending art before Mm. and one of them was that it connects you to something that you feel larger than yourself what this activity or whatever you're doing and also that it changes your perception of time Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: so that's one that i had never heard before i think that's really uh, a profound thing to say, because you can kind of take anything that you get into that flow state with or anything that you're extremely passionate about, you know, as long as it's not like hurting someone. Yeah. Uh, Like even video games for someone Mm -hmm. can be, uh, uh, you know, an art and fulfilling for them. And I think that in our particular situation in America at this moment, everything is so commodified that you can also almost feel guilty for doing something that you enjoy that changes that like so someone who may play video games for for an hour or two hours or whatever and then be like well I should have been working on my scrunchie company or like whatever yeah. the thing that the uh, uh, America would be saying and I think that's a really big uh really cool way to look at art as a as a way to make your life more fulfilling so yeah I'm gonna borrow yeah. that that defense from you what do you uh, what are your hopes for the record you know like they like what do you see it doing for people or becoming popular or setting off new connections for new opportunities
1: well I wrote down some intentions before the record came out and um, I have the benefit of being able to read them because they're tacked onto the wall with it sticky right now nice. <laughs> um, but they were help people relate to their loss and um, hold space for intergenerational trauma and create a vessel for reimagining failure and success. Um, And you can never, you know, when you make something and then you share it with the world, you can never control how it's perceived or how it hits people. So, you know, I can intend all day long, but I'm not sure if that's how people will read it or experience it. It seems as though, you know, from some of the things that people have, Kindly shared with me that maybe some of those intentions are ringing true for people, um, and yeah, I really wanted to just kind of honor my dad and um, and and the idea of loss in general. Um, you know, I have some like secret, like it, it's hard to set intentions that I just have no control over. You know, I I um, or seem sort of self serving, um, but my you know, I I secretly would love to be invited to do a tiny desk. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I secretly would be amazing.
1: Yeah, I would love to, you know, I hope something that I hope is that, you know, I'll maybe have more opportunities to work in the medium of like writing, writing and have some poetry or essay related opportunities. Um, But those things I can't, you know, it's hard to, it, it's disconnected from. There's a saying in yoga. It's karma yaga and it's you have the right to your labor, but not the fruits of your labor. So, um, I try not to focus on the fruits too much and think about you know those are those are blossoms that can happen once I've built a really strong branch, you know. And if they never do, then I'm not disappointed. So,
0: absolutely great. I think it's a great way to look at those uh, expectations. Because if you, I also. Maybe in a woo-woo sense, believe that if you do build the branch strong enough, or whatever analogy suits it, that the flowers will come. So, like a you know, eventually, you know, we, people do experience complete disaster and failure in yeah. all of the personal and, and material senses of the words. But if you build something strong enough that uh, it, it is intentioned that way, that it can, it's more likely to happen. You're definitely increasing the surface area for for luck, essentially. If you mm. if you do that work in the beginning of it um i know nothing about the poetry space i think it's a, a a super fascinating world it is difficult for me to picture how you get anybody to pay for it in any way <laughs> like uh, i guess you could buy a print maybe you could correct me if i'm wrong or if somebody wants to license it or use it for something uh growing up i did one of my best friends was a poet an amazing poet he was really good at freestyling and he loved hip-hop music and he did spoken word poetry, and it was extremely animated about it, and we would go to these poetry readings at an art house downtown. He is a—he uh, uh, since passed away two Octobers ago, Aww. but he was, like, the only vector I had for the poetry world, and it was super fascinating, because once in a while, a professional poet would come, and they were always the biggest fucking weirdos. Yeah. Uh, and particularly, there was a couple of, like, dudes that would come that were like, what I would later come to find probably like Kerouac-esque or whatever. They were really kind of just like, you know, take out a flask in the middle of telling a poetry. They're probably just like trying to get laid or something. But uh, that whole world was like, I don't know, it was, it was really fascinating. There's parallels to it in music, but I just wondered what it's like. You said you jumped into it and tried to figure it out. What What is it like?
1: Well, I would say I, I jumped it into it in the sense that like, you know, I I think it's probably like, if I knew nothing about how to do anything in music, I would probably start by writing some songs and trying to get signed to a record label, which is not, okay. I wouldn't advise that route for no, most people these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, so I think I was like, oh, well, the only way that you get, you know, you, you get published in literary magazines and that's how you get book deals. Um, okay. And so, you know, just like, which now I'm learning is not the ultimate goal, but, you know, if, if my... You know secret intention is to have a book with my name on the spine and have an advance of ten thousand dollars or something then you know i'm like gonna follow this particular path but um i learned quickly that that's not that's not the path that i'm mm-hmm. that i want to follow and that um you know you i look at someone like rupee um i don't know how to pronounce their last name rupee who wrote Milk and Honey, which kind of like revolutionized the modern poetry world. And they, they self-published a book and then basically really grew an online following through Instagram. And then, you know, after having self-published this book, I think um, I'm trying to look at the, the book on the shelf and see who the publisher is. Some A huge publisher, Simon, Simon & Schuster or something, um, you know, picked up. Picked up their book, and then from there, you know, they had gotten a lot of speaking opportunities and sort of um, art direction opportunities, and that's an interesting path because it's very much like grassroots, and then you know, kind of gets validated by the industry people. And I'm not exactly sure what my what my root is in in poetry, but I think part of you know, and I feel grateful to be operating sort of in a poetic sense. In something like the indie DIY music scene, because a sure. lot of people are really afraid of poetry and don't know how to approach it as a medium. And you know, I would add an intention to my intention list that maybe this record, if it reached people, could help um, help folks who feel kind of scared of poetry be able to approach it in a way. Because I look at some poems and some poets in a life saving way you know, in the same life-saving way that I look at songs and and some music, you know, we all, I think just like we have our come to Jesus moment, we can have our like this song saved my life moment. Absolutely. Um, and I, I have like this poem saved my life moments too. So.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I, I also think of poetry as, so I always talked about how playing acoustic guitar for me alone and spending so many, many long years playing in a band that's really loud band that you don't, you can kind of hide behind all of that. And then playing an acoustic guitar and singing is extremely vulnerable. And then I, the next level of uh, creating a, a type of music with just words and the way that they interact with each other and resonate with people is extremely vulnerable. So that's a, uh, yeah, I think there's a, a space there for poetry and how it's done for me has really changed the way I think about some things, but as an art form, it is a, you know, it's hard. <laughs> mm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very exposed.
0: Totally. Uh, so before you go, uh, we're getting on to an hour here, and I thank you so much for enjoying me. I wanted to ask, there's some French in mm. uh, on the na- on the newest record. Did you study French in school?
1: Oui, j'ai étudié un peu de français. Amazing. Uh, j'ai oublié uh, basically all of it. <laughs> that means I forgot <laughs> most of it. Um, but uh, I wouldn't say that. that's not true. I, I have retained a lot. But yeah, I studied French um i don't know it it was like a weird little kid thing where i was like "Ooh, i'm eight years old and i want to learn french so i like bought a french dictionary from you know barnes and noble or whatever and just started learning vocabulary and then studied in middle school and high school and college and was i would say like um i would say i'm elementary conversational now there was a point in which i was like dreaming completely in french and so you know navigated my way completely in french I, i i lived in west africa for a little while and i was traveling in togo and um you know they speak native dialect or french there and me and a friend had crossed the border we're trying to meet friends our cell phones didn't work we had no fucking idea where they were and all i could do is try and navigate this taxi cab driver completely in my french speaking skills and somehow we got from the border of benin and togo (laughs) to the center of the city to this tiny ass little cafe that was selling beer and frites and, That's incredible. Um, I think at first he accidentally took us to a brothel, and then um, I was like, <laughs> There's "This like isn't one it." One
0: word in that dialect that was too close <laughs> yeah. to another one.
1: And then miraculously, <laughs> I was like, "I think it's on this road." And so we were driving down the road, and and then like saw our friends sitting outside this cafe, and I was like. <laughs> You know, ahead, <laughs> ahead! Stop, stop! Please, those
0: are our friends. Oh yeah, um, what an empowering uh, experience! And I think that studying a language—I studied uh, Spanish in in high school and college—and from working in kitchens and some other jobs—and got got pretty good at speaking it, like at a basic conversational level. And like when we went to when we go to Spain and when we go to Mexico, it's very easy to, to get along, and it's wonderful. But the the coolest thing I think is how it unlocks. Parts of your brain unlocks parts of communication, and it is just so essential to worldview. Mm. I often wonder if language isn't actually um, the way that we communicate the thoughts in our head, but becomes opposite. Like, the way that our thoughts in our head come from this agreed-upon kind of contract that we have with each other, that the words are going to um, reflect certain ideas or nouns or, or whatever it is. And I think it's really important for people to... to um, to learn them. And I wondered if, uh, learning that French kind of opened up your perception or understanding of English and are able to kind of make poetry a deeper, uh, art.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, I've, I have been lucky enough to travel so much based on, you know, music and being willing to give all my money away. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, I've been able to learn a few languages like or learn words in a few languages and I definitely have the most the biggest grasp on French but learned you know a, a Ghanaian dialect Twi. I took a Twi class um, yeah. and I was lived in Italy for a little while and learned some Italian um, and I really love to to speak German, like the few words I know in German and
0: God, I love German um, so much.
1: Yeah. I I think that different languages, because they're born in different cultures, have this understanding of communication and kind of experience. And so, you know, I remember when I was when I was living in Italy, I was working I was woofing and working on an organic farm and we were building a fountain. And um the farm we were working on was like they were total hippies artists and um the man who was sort of like constructing us to build this fountain was a restoration painter and he was like we have to we have to it's not just building the fountain it's it's realizing the fountain <laughs> that's like not an italian <laughs> accent at all no, i'm sorry good. i'm sorry vittorio yeah. but um he used this word, realize, and it was like, it's more than building, it's more than constructing. It's like, it is it is poetically f- like, yeah, like envisioning this thing that comes, you know, to build like has kind of these connotations of like, strength and muscles and putting blocks on top of blocks, but to realize has sort of this like, um, like emotionality to it and, sure. um yeah, that that's like a big example of, you know, how sometimes finding the common word um, between people who speak different languages can really open up your understanding of experience.
0: Absolutely. It's very cool. Very beautiful way to put it. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, Tom. Um, this is great.
0: Hell yeah. What? Uh, how can people reach you? You.
1: Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anika Sneeka, that's S-N-E-A-K-A. Um, you can find me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Anika Um, and yeah, you can always email me, um, especially if you're Bob Boylan, you know, trying to get me on that tiny desk. Just kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anika pile stuff at gmail.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. And I can't wait uh, until next time.
1: Yes. Thank you, Tom.
0: There you have it, Anika Pyle I am so excited to continue to fall in love With Wild River and to see what She comes up with next I have a feeling this is the beginning of a, of a wonderful Artistic life and I'm, I'm really stoked To be able to see it evolve um, Once again, you can listen to Wild River Wherever you listen to music Wherever you stream that shit at You can also head over to AnikaPyle.com to buy the record Check out the book that she made That comes with the record She can be reached at Anika Sneeka At Instagram and Twitter And, yeah, AnikaPile.com. Bye.